Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we pray that you're encouraged by this message. Now lean in as we hear from God's Word together. The Thread of Love is the series that we're going to be, and I'm kind of going to just set more of the overview, the foundation of this series today. So we're going to be all over the place, and in the coming weeks, um, we're going to be more um, intentional. In fact, next week, we're going to be in Genesis 1.1. I'm reading one verse, all right? So you guys can go home and read that and, and then watch me sweat it out as I get ready to teach. But um, it's, it's going to be good. I'm actually really excited about it. But the goal of this series, though, is to show us that the Bible tells one amazing story. And so for the next several weeks, we're going to go through the entire Bible and show you that story. Now, you might be thinking, Nate, you're a little crazy here. Because it took us like 22 weeks to go through five chapters in the book of James. And a little book called Titus, it was only three chapters long, not very big. It took us eight weeks to get through that. You're like, Nate, how in the world are we going to get through the entire Bible in 11 weeks? Well, obviously, we're not going to get into every detail of Scripture. But over the next few months, what I hope to do is show you the arc of the story. That there is one story from beginning to end that the Bible tells a story of God's love for the people of the world, that on every page and every story, we will see a thread of love for his people. That's the title of the series, but that's also the title of today's message, Thread of Love. And it's important for us to know this story because if you were here, we have a Vision Sunday on, in September for our church's anniversary. And on September, I told you guys that we were going to be, after Easter, going through the book of Revelation. And a lot of us were excited about that. I'm excited about that as well. And um, I, I even had some people, you're so excited. You're like, wait, are we starting that next week? I'm like, no, we're not. Like, we're going to slow it down just a little bit. Like, you know, I'm excited to get into it. I'm a little nervous. So be praying for me on that one. But um, we're going to get into it. And just kind of more as a side note, I think here's what happens. We get so excited about the end of the story that we don't really know the full story. We need to know the whole story of the Bible to fully know and appreciate the story. And so we need to know key elements that are found in this book. We need to know who, are the, who is the character of the main character of the story of the Bible. What is the story of the Bible before we ever know how it ends? In fact, this week I was, this is kind of more of a side note, but this week I was listening to a pastor and he was talking about the book of Revelation. And he said, oftentimes what we do is we read the book of Revelation in one hand and we read our news and our social media in the other hand, and we try to marry them together. And we can, like, it's good to try to, we can have discussions about that stuff. How does this work out? Is this the end times? Is this playing out? But what he said is back in the day, when you read Revelation, you opened up the scroll, you read it in one hand, and you opened up the Old Testament, and you read it in the other hand. Why? Because it's all pointing to God and what he's done. And so for me, really what's, what brought us to the series, what brought me to wanting to teach this to you guys is I want to make sure well, well before we know the end of the story, we actually know what the story of the Bible is, that we fully know and appreciate that story before we ever know the end of it. In fact, this week I was even reading a little bit about Bible reading and, and reading habits and what the Bible means to people. And I found some interesting and quite frankly, some heartbreaking statistics on it. In fact, this week I read that 87% of people own a Bible. And out of those 87, they probably own two Bibles, three Bibles, four Bibles. And that sounds great, right? Like I think we could all probably say we have one Bible, two Bibles. You might even have a family Bible, right? And I think that statistic sounds really good. But what it said was, and what it really showed is that that number dramatically drops from people who own Bible to people who actually read it. And it said out of those people who read the Bible, 13% have read just a few sentences 
and 30% have read several passages. And asked why they read the Bible, 52% of people said, well, it's just a good source of morals. While 35% said it is life-changing. I thought about that, and I was thinking about in the South, we're in the Bible Belt, right? Like everybody says, I'm a Christian, I go to church, I own a Bible. Again, you probably have a family Bible, maybe, you know? We all have a Bible, but oftentimes I don't think that the Bible has really changed our lives. I was thinking about conversations I've had with people before, and they're talking about all these other things, and then when they find out that I'm a pastor, they're like, well, you know, I I also read the Bible, and I I go to church. And it's like, you do? Because based on how we were talking before, it doesn't seem like that was, that the Bible has impacted your life, changed your life in any way. I thought about that, and I was like, it's kind of like the movie Napoleon Dynamite. Who here remembers that movie, Napoleon Dynamite, right? 2004, a a year in which we all kind of left a little confused after that movie. And I was thinking about it, I remember watching it for the first time on my friend's couch, and and the movie was done, and it was over, and the credits were playing, and we all looked at each other, and we were all like, what was this? Like, what did we just watch? Like, I remember even asking, what time period was this in? Like, that didn't even make sense to me. Everybody was like, well, what was the theme? What was the point of the movie? None of it made any sense. In fact, a couple of years ago, I showed it to my boys. And I said, we're going to watch this movie. And they sat there and they watched it. And even I think Brody, my oldest son, he looked at me and he was like, what was that? Like, what did we just watch? And they were all like, we got to watch this again. Like, we don't even understand what this movie is about. But think about it like this. It it was like this cultural impact, right? Like Napoleon Dynamite made an impact in our culture back in 2004. And it kind of seems like it still has. Like we try to quote it. Like if you're still like me, you still try to fit it in to your sentences, right? Like there's times the boys will come and ask me a question. I'll be like, oh. The boys will be drinking milk. And I'm like, is that 1%? Because you could totally be drinking whole milk right now, right? You know? Or, you know, I think Asher, ironically, he bought his school lunch, and I think they had tots. And he put tots in his pocket because he was later snacking on them in class. And I was like, what? What are you doing? He was like, I didn't have time to eat. And I was like, man. And so I quoted, I was like, can I have some of your tots, Napoleon? You know, like, like we all try to fit those quotes. We all try to like say it. Like I remember people trying to do the dance. I don't know. Does anybody know the Napoleon Dynamite dance? If you do, you could come and show me right up here and I'd love to see it after service. But I didn't know the dance, but you know, we like to quote the movie. We like to try to play the dances, do the dances. It made an impact in our lives. But really the reality is none of us were really trying to be Napoleon Dynamite. It didn't really impact our lives to that extent. And I think the same is true when it comes to God's word. For a lot of us, we own a Bible. We read a Bible. We know some of the stories. We can even quote some of the Bible. We come to church with our Bibles and we open it up, but it hasn't really impacted our lives, transformed our lives. And again, the goal of this series is from a 30,000 feet view, know the story of the Bible and how we can live changed lives because of it. And so again, this week, it's more of an overview. I'm really just setting the foundation for the rest of the series and where we're going over the next several weeks. And this week, we're going to look at the story of the Bible from three ways, the character of the Bible, the plot, and the end. And so the first one is the character. And we talked about this at Christmas time, that this is the greatest story ever told, that this is the one true story. This isn't a fictional story. It's not a story that began a long, long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, or is a fairy tale. This is the one true story. And I believe every story we read gets its foundation, gets some components from the Bible. 
And there are certain components that all good stories have in common. And one of those components is every story needs a main character. And when it comes to the Bible, one of the ways that people misinterpret or misunderstand the Bible is that we miss the main character of the Bible. In fact, I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. Some people believe that the main character of the Bible is good and evil. That good and evil are locked in control for this fight of control over the hearts and lives of the people of earth. It's kind of like Star Wars, right? Anybody like Star Wars here today? Like, I love Star Wars. Disney's kind of ruined a lot of it, but I still like Star Wars, you know? And it's one of my favorite movies. But what's the story? It's the battle between the light side and the dark side, the good side and the evil side. And they're always in this battle. And, and maybe somebody is sucked into the evil side, but by the end, they're kind of brought back to the light side and everything's good. Everything's redeemed. It's good to go. And there's this battle between the light and the dark side of the force. And a lot of people think that's the story of the Bible. And it's the story of this good and evil that we're all kind of like holding our breaths, trying to see which one's going to win. But listen, good and evil are not the main character of the Bible. Some people believe that we are the main characters of the story of the Bible. And isn't it just like us to think that the Bible is about us? It's about our wants, our needs, our desires. And you'll hear preachers, especially on TV, they'll describe the Bible and they do it in such a way that it's almost like this treasure map. That if you look here, you're going to find all the ways to be prosperous and blessed They'll describe the Bible as this kind of how-to manual for your life that it'll help you enjoy a healthy and prosperous life. And if you just follow these steps of scripture, you'll never have worries, you'll never have sickness, you'll have all the money that you want. And they'll teach that the Bible is a story about how you can be healthy, wealthy, and wise. But listen, we are not the main characters of the Bible. Some people believe that the main characters of the Bible are God and Satan. And it's these two great enemies that are engaged in this eternal battle for control over the universe. But let me be very clear this morning. Satan is not God's equal foe. Satan is a created being, a fallen angel who's already been defeated. How do we know this? Go to the end of the Bible. Go to the end of the story. Revelation 20 verse 10 says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet had been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Listen, here today, our enemy has been defeated. Jesus has already won. Victory is there. The battle is already over. Jesus kicked his teeth out. The worst thing the enemy can do is gum us to death. Jesus wins. The battle is over. And then you might be thinking, okay, Nate, well, then who is the main character of the Bible? There is only one main character of the Bible, and that is God. God is the main character of the Bible. How do we know this? We can look at Jeremiah 10.6. It says, no one, it can be translated in the Hebrew, none is like you, O Lord. You are great, and your name is mighty in power. Isaiah 57, 15, right before God speaks, Isaiah uses two adjectives to describe God. He says that he is high and the exalted one. High describes the fact that God holds the highest place in everything. And when compared to anything else, he is exalted. That describes his relationship to every other created thing in this world. So God holds the highest place. We could say it this way. God is in a category all by himself. And listen, this isn't just something taught in the Old Testament. It's also taught in the New Testament. If you're able to, turn to Romans 11.36. 
Turn to Romans 11.36, because in the New Testament, we see this play out as well. It's not just Old Testament, it's New Testament. Paul, he's writing to a church in Rome, and this is what he says. He says, for from him, which speaks of the origin and the source, and through him, which speaks of someone's hands, that something is accomplished, and to him, which speaks of the purpose, aim, meaning, end. So it says, for from him, and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. I want you to take note of that little phrase, all things. Because in the Greek, it's just one word and it speaks of the totality of the whole. Meaning when you think about the big things in this world, think about creation, for example. Everything that you can touch, taste, smell, feel. In a moment, God opened up his mouth and he spoke and things came into existence. God spoke and galaxies and stars and planets were formed. God spoke and human beings came to life. And so here's what this means in light of this verse. All creation is from him. It means he's the origin. He's the source. All creation is through him. It's by his hands that it all happened. It's by his hands that all things are sustained and all creation is for him. Meaning this, the heavens declare the glory of God. But get this, all things also means the smallest minute detail of your life. That everything in your life is from him, through him, and to him. We could take even just the smallest thing. Think about this. We're all breathing in this room today, right? Like if the person next to you isn't breathing, you know, kind of just give them a little holy nudge, right? Make sure they're alive and they're breathing. But we're all breathing here today. And here's what this means, that the very next breath that you're about to take in your body, the breath that you haven't even thought of right now, the breath that you're not even thinking about right now, that very next breath, it came from him. God is the source. God is the originator of that. And my ability to breathe in, where does that come from? It comes through him. He's sustaining me. He's allowing me to breathe. And everything I'm going to do with my next breath is for him. It's for his glory. And so the Bible is ultimately about God and his glory. And listen, we will never understand our place in the story until we understand it is not about us. It's ultimately about God and his glory. Let me tell you what I've realized in my own life. When God is most glorified, my life is most satisfied. When God is most glorified, my life is most satisfied. But every time I start trying to live for my glory, my wants, my needs, my desires, let me tell you what that's like. It's like walking around with the cup with the hole in the bottom of it. Every time I'm trying to fill it up with my wants, my desires, my needs, what people think of me, my glory and all that, it's just empty. It keeps being filled up, but it's never full. There's an emptiness there. But when I live all of my life knowing there is someone who is infinitely bigger than me and I leverage all of that for his glory, God is most glorified in my life, and my life is most satisfied. Why? Because we were made for his glory. So all stories have a main character. God is the main character of the Bible. But then all stories have a plot, and that's the next thing we're going to look at today, the plot. The plot of the Bible is about God's love for all people, and we see it in four distinct parts. And we're going to go over these in the next several weeks, but the first part of the plot is the divine purpose of God. God has a divine purpose. God and his sovereignty created us with meaning, significance, and value. And you might be thinking, well, what's that meaning, significance, and value? 
God created us as the crowning achievement, the crown jewel of his creation. Here's the main purpose of your existence. He created us to know him, to love him, and to be known and loved by him. That's the reason why we were made. Life is always going to feel like a cup with a hole in the bottom of it until you understand that you've been made to know him, to love him, and to be known and loved by him. Now, if you can, turn to the very beginning of the book, Genesis 1. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created male and female, he created them. We were made in the image and likeness of God, male and female, equally expressing the image of God. But then I love verse 28 because it says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Verse 28 is very interesting to me because the word blessed in the Hebrew is a word that means to bow, to come low to approach or to come near. Now, when the word blessed is used in the Old Testament, most of the time it's used uh, with us, talking about us and how we relate to God. We recognize the greatness of God and we bring ourselves low. We bow before him. We humble ourselves. We worship him. We praise and bless his name. But why does verse 28 say, and God blessed them? Wouldn't it make more sense if the Bible said God created man in his own image, God created the male and female, and they blessed God? I mean, they've just been created. They've just been placed in God's creation that he finished speaking into existence. I'm pretty sure they would have been filled with awe and wonder at everything that God made. So shouldn't the verse be interpreted? Well, they bowed low and they blessed God, but it doesn't say that. It says that God blessed them. So what is this verse talking about? Here's what this means. From the second human beings were created, God brought himself low. He brought himself near to us. He made his presence known to us. Why? Because God never meant for us to live apart from him. We were were made to live all of life in the presence of God. And what God created humans for were to be his children. God created us to be in relationship with him, to be close to him, to relate with him, and to love him. That's what he wanted when he created you and me. And I think that's why he gave himself the title father, because he wants there to be that closeness to us. But then look at what it says. Not only did God bless them, but it says, and God said to them. And that should just blow our minds right there, because God didn't have to speak to us. He didn't owe us anything. He is God. God was not in need of us. God wasn't looking for companionship. God already existed in eternity past and he was in perfect unity. He was in unity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. God was lacking nothing and yet God made us and the Bible says God spoke to us. Meaning from the very moment we were created, God revealed his presence and God talked to us. We were made to know him, to love him and to be known and loved by him. And we were made to live all of life out of the overflow of that relationship with him. That's the divine purpose of God. But then we move to the problem of sin. And of course, we know what happens. Genesis chapter three, right? Adam and Eve sinned against God. They broke God's law. And so sin entered the picture. Sin robbed us of this ability to have a relationship with God. In fact, Isaiah 59 too says it this way. But your iniquities 
have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. We were made to live in, live in relationship with him. But because of our sin, we are now cut off from that relationship. Sin separated us from God. No matter how good we try to be, no matter how moral we try to be, no matter how religious we try to be, there is nothing that can change the fact that we've already sinned against God. And because of our sins, we deserve to spend eternity separated from God. But then that leads us to the third plot. And that's the promise of a savior. And if you were with us last year during Christmas time, we talked all about the fact that God is a God who makes promises and God keeps his promises. And we talked about the fact that one of the promises God made is that he was going to send a savior to us. And this wasn't something that you just came up with in the New Testament. This isn't something that came up with in the middle of the Old Testament. It goes all the way back to Genesis 3, 315 that he was going to send a savior who even though the enemy would come in and bruise his heel, he was going to crush his head. And that promise would be fulfilled through the person of Jesus. That's why Christmas Eve, we read Matthew 121. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the one that was promised all the way back in Genesis that would restore that which we lost because of sin. How did Jesus do that? Well, if you can, turn to 2 Corinthians 5.21. 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. None of us were qualified to deal with the sin that separated us from God. Why? Because we are all sinners. It required someone who was sinless. And so God did what you and I could not do. God sent his only begotten son, Jesus, into this world. Jesus took on human flesh. God became a man and he lived that sinless life. So God the Father made him, God the Son, who knew no sin to be sin for us. And on the cross, Jesus took on all of our sin, every wicked act, every lustful thought, every single wicked action that we do, everything that stepped across the boundary of God. Jesus took all of that sin on the cross and God poured out all the judgment of sin on Jesus that we deserve. We committed those sins. Jesus didn't, but God poured out all that wrath on Jesus. But here's the good news of the gospel. He didn't stay dead. He rose again, conquering sin, death, hell, and the grave, which shows a testimony that God was satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus for our sins. And so when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, that which we lost because of sin, through a relationship, we get restored back into a right relationship with God. But I don't want us to miss how this verse closes out. It says, so that we might become the righteousness of God. We're now justified. And here's what a lot of people think when they hear the word justified. It's a kind of a cute little phrase and I'm not trying to throw shade if you've said it before. I know I've said this before, so I'm not trying to downplay it or be like, oh, foolish you, because I've said this too. But a lot of people, when they think about the word justified, they will say, well, justified is just as if I'd never sinned, right? Justified. Sounds cute. Just as if I'd never sinned. But it's theologically incorrect because that's not sufficient. Just as if I'd sinned, you never sinned, you know what that would be? That would be restoring us back to Adam's best righteousness before sin entered the garden. 
And how did that turn out? Not too good, right? He didn't restore us back to Adam's righteousness. It doesn't say, and he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might be restored to Adam's righteousness. What does it say there? It says the righteousness of God. It's the righteousness of God. Here's the great exchange that I want you to see in this verse here. Jesus took on all of your sin, all of my sin. He went to the cross. He died for those sins. He rose again. And when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, guess what happens? We get clothed in the very righteousness of God himself. Meaning that God doesn't look at me as a sinner trying to do my best. God looks at me as the righteousness of Jesus himself. Does that mean I earn that? No. Does that mean I deserve that? No. Does that mean I earn that every day and live up to that every day? Absolutely not. But by the amazing grace of God, I've been reconciled through the blood of Jesus. And I've been made right with God and my relationship has now been restored. Here's the fourth plot. God shares his story through his people. See, from the end of the gospels up to the book of Revelation, we see God sharing his story with the world through his people. In fact, Acts 1.8 says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Don't miss this. God in his grace invites us to be a part of the story. We get the privilege of using our gifts, our talents, our abilities, our job, our workplace, our schools, the place that we like to play and hang out, our neighborhoods. We get to leverage all of that to share the story of the God locally. And then the gospel then goes to the ends of the earth. We should all try to use everything in our life, our education, our resources, our talents, our gifts, everything in our lives to show the world, hey, God is my savior. And when they see God as our savior, They should be like, hey, I need to get in on that. I need God as my savior as well. So we've seen the characters. We see the plot. But one thing all stories have in common is there is an end. And that's our last thought today is the end. And let me just tell you, I've read the end of the story and it is glorious and it is good. In fact, turn to Revelation 21. It's at the very end. You might come across some concordances or some words. You can keep flipping the other way to the left and you'll find it. Get it on the YouVersion Bible app. If you, didn't, if you don't have a Bible, there might be a Bible in the chair in your row. Grab that as well. If you need a Bible, let us know. We'll get you one. Revelation 21. Let's just look at verses 1 through 4. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Here's what this means. Everything that we lost because of sin gets restored and redeemed through Jesus. And really the end of the story, it's just the beginning of the story. 
It's the beginning of enjoying eternity as God intended it. In his presence, knowing him, loving him, being known and loved by him for all of eternity. How do you get in on this story? John 1 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Here's what this means. You cannot earn God's favor. There's nothing you can do. It's not in your flesh. It's not your will. It's not through your blood. Nothing you can do. It's only through faith in Jesus. And you might think, man, that sounds really easy. And it is for us because Jesus did all the work. He paid the penalty for sin. He rose again for us as, as proving that he, we could be made right with God if we put our faith and trust in him. And so if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you don't have a relationship with him, maybe you did once and you've walked away from that. Here in a moment, I want to give you an opportunity to pray that prayer, to receive Jesus into your life through just confession of sin, admitting that you need a savior, repenting of that sin, turning from that sin and turning to Jesus. Here's my hope and my prayer for us as we're in this series. It's not that we just own a Bible, might own a few Bibles. It's not that we might just crack it open on a Sunday, read what it has to say. It's not that we just know a few sentences, a few stories. That we don't look at this as like, well, it's good morals to live by, but that it's truly transformed our lives. My prayer has really been that you would understand the story of the Bible in a whole new way, that it would fall fresh on you. And what, it would do what Revelation says, that we, would, um, uh, that we would fall in love one more time, right? We'd return to our first love. That's my hope. That's my prayer. In fact, I was thinking of a story, Luke chapter 24. Um, you could read it later for yourself, but the Nate translation goes like this summarize it here. After Jesus rose from the dead, you have these two guys and they're walking from um, Jerusalem to Emmaus and they're hanging out and they're talking about all these things and their heads are down and they're just having this conversation. And what I love is that Jesus kind of comes right up to them like this, you know, and they're talking and Jesus is like, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, are you new guy? Like, have you read the scrolls recently? Like, do you know what's going on? Like Jesus died and they go on and they're talking about how, man, we hope that Jesus was the one who was going to redeem and, and save Israel, but that doesn't seem like that's going to happen here. And then it goes on and it says that Jesus gave an Old Testament lesson on the prophecies regarding his death and resurrection. And the Bible tells us that he started with Moses. So it goes all the way to the beginning, works his way through the prophets. It says that Jesus tells this story. Jesus gave these guys this message. And man, I, when I read that, I was like, I really wish that I knew what this message was that Jesus gave. Like, I, I really do. I, it would be so cool to know what he said from beginning to end. I mean, that would have made today a whole lot easier for me too, you know? But it says this, after Jesus gave him this message, Luke 24, 32, it says this. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us? story goes on to say that they uh, end up running back and they tell the disciples, hey, Jesus is alive. We've encountered him on the road. See, here's the thing. Their joy came from the revelation of Jesus. 
Their hope in Jesus was not misplaced. When they took the focus off of themselves, off the problems in their world, and they put it back on Jesus, what happened? Hope bloomed again. And don't we often find ourselves in similar circumstances and situations? Our eyes are fixed on our problems, what's going on in our lives, what's going on in the world. And, and again, I'm not trying to downplay that or be like, you should get over. I know that there's some very big things going on. I'm not trying to downplay that. But isn't it just like us to take our eyes off of Jesus and put it on something else? I know for me, I'm, I'm guilty of that. I'm guilty of that this week. So many times I take my eyes off of Jesus and I put it on something else. But let me tell you what I've experienced. When I open up the Bible, when I open up the scriptures, my heart burns within me. And I long for something more than what this world has to offer. See, hope comes from knowing God through the story of the Bible. How do you know the story of the Bible for yourself? It doesn't come, I'm not going to be up here and say, hey, we got a six-week class. You got to take this special pill or at the end of these 11 weeks, you're going to have it all down. That's not it at all. It takes intentionality on your behalf. You got to find a Bible reading plan. You got to start somewhere reading. Listen, there's even like dramatized readings that you can get of the Bible. So if you're like, I have ADD, I can't read. That's fine. I do too. But I listen to the dramatized versions of these things too. The YouVersion Bible app is a free, it'll read it to you. There's ways to get God's word in you for you to know the story. And here's the point. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the God of the Bible. That's why we gather. That's why we sing, because of who he is. Amen? Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We'd love to hear how this message or the ministry of Awaken has impacted your life. Let us know at awaken.church forward slash my story.